You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. Welcome back to another great episode of Cutaneous Miscellaneous. Last episode, I spoke with Dr. Darren Regal on tips for becoming a financially successful dermatologist, and we had a really nice conversation. I called him yesterday to review the episode, and I said, Dr. Regal, you know, why is Aaron Judge hitting so many home runs this year? And as everybody knows, or as most of you know, Dr. Regal is the team dermatologist of the New York Yankees. And he said, well, as I always tell you, Nick, it's because he's got no skin concerns. So hope I didn't offend our current guest because she lives in LA. I hope she's not a Dodgers fan. No, <laughs> um, that's I'm okay. Ha- <laughs> I'm actually from the Midwest, so I, uh, okay. <laughs> I root for many teams. Good, good. So go Yankees. And uh, really happy and um, honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Nada Elbaluk, who is Associate Professor of Dermatology at USC Keck School of Medicine in Los Angeles, California, the founder and director of the Skin of Color program and the director of the Dermatology DEI initiatives at in the Department of Dermatology at USC. So Dr. Elbaluk, great to have you here. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be talking with you today. Good. I'm really excited to go over a bunch of things with you. We're going to first talk about some board review on some skin of color topics. And then the main part of the episode is finding your niche in dermatology, which all of the residents, including myself, need a little bit of help on that. So let's 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 get started. So skin of color is a very important topic. And I want to talk about how this may come up on board exams and keys to diagnosis, keys to treatment. The first one I want to ask about is lichen planus pigmentosum. So what are some keys to know about this for the exams? Yeah, so this is a disorder of hyperpigmentation. Um, we see it, you know, more commonly in individuals of color. And a couple key things about it. So the color is something that um, one should pay attention to. It tends to be more of a dark brownish gray, um, and that hue can vary depending on the person's background color. But um, because the pigment uh, involves not just epidermal but also dermal pigment, that dermal pigment gives it that darker grayish, blue gray sort of look. Um, so that is one thing to help you distinguish it. The morphology are patches. Um, so it shouldn't be a plaque. It shouldn't be um, annular. It's really just flat sort of patches. Um, and it tends to be in photo exposed areas. So this is something you're going to see more, you know, head, neck, arms, um, more commonly. Um, and, you know, those are things clinically when you're looking at a case of it, you'd want to think about, you know, ADP and Reels melanosis and a few other things in your differential. So hopefully there would be something in the actual question stem that would kind of help you lean more towards um, LPP more specifically. Okay. So it sounds like distribution is pretty key. Distribution definitely makes a difference. I mean, there's always some specific cases that, you know, fall out of the normal variant, but, you know, EDP for the most part is in non-photoexposed areas. So we see it a lot on trunk and, you know, parts of arms and legs that don't necessarily see the sun, but there's certainly overlap between the two. You can get LPP in some non-photoexposed areas um, and EDP in some photoexposed. So keeping that in mind, yes, the main rule of thumb is it is photoexposed, but there are exceptions. Awesome. How about seborrheic macular hypopigmentation? This is sounds like a new disease that you've kind of worked on and you coined and could come up on exam. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So this is a new entity. Well, I should say newly named entity. So it was initially um, published by one of our colleagues in France, Dr. Izzedine, in the British Journal of Dermatology. And at that time, he published a case series um, of what he called hypochromic vitiligo. Um, Years ago, if you look in the literature, they called something vitiligo minor, which sounds like it was very similar. Um, And then, you know, those of us who are sort of in the vitiligo world and study and treat it a lot, really looked at the cases again and 
decided, you know what, this doesn't really fit with vitiligo either. So we renamed it recently in a publication that came out in the JEADV, Seborrheic Macular Hypopigmentation. So what is there to know about the condition? These are individuals of color, often types 5, 6, who present with these hypopigmented macules, which sometimes can coalesce into patches, in a seborrheic distribution. So head, neck, upper chest, upper back are really the common areas where we've seen it. Um, there's no overlying scale, no epidermal change, um, doesn't tend to be symptomatic, and we've seen it more in middle-aged individuals. The original case series that Dr. Azadine did, all the individuals were uh, of color. We did another case series combining cases from us, um, Detroit, uh, as well as France, um, and we had I think one other uh, contributor to it. But again, all of ours were darker skin individuals. The challenge with this condition and the reason it's been named sort of its its own name um, is that it doesn't really fit perfectly with any of the other conditions of hypo or depigmentation that we have. On biopsy, um, majority of the time melanocytes are preserved. There are a few cases where maybe there's a slight decrease in melanocyte number, um, but for the most part, it's more of a decrease in epidermal melanin. So when you biopsy it, a lot of times, um, if the pathologist doesn't know the clinical history, they'll come back and say, um, could be consistent with post-inflammatory hypopigmentation, or sometimes they'll talk about progressive macular hypomelanosis, but the clinical distribution doesn't really fit with that and the, the presentation. So, you know, we think this is really its own entity that really needs more translational and basic science work for us to understand the pathogenesis and really how to approach treatment. Um, and every time I've, you know, brought it up in a lecture, people, in, you know, and definitely, um, you know, come up at the end of the lecture and say, you know, I, I think I've seen that before. And I've had people randomly email and text me cases like, this is what you presented. So it's out there and people are seeing it, um, but we just need to learn more about it. Sure. Sounds like it's out there. I would imagine this could show up on the board exam or the core exams this year or next year. So it's really something good to keep in mind. Finally, I want to ask about, you know, what are some tips for handling common dermatoses that present in skin of color differently when preparing for the board exams and for the core exams as dermatology residents? So I'm glad you asked that because this is such an important topic and it's getting a lot more attention in dermatology. So depending on where you train, you may or may not see a diverse range of skin colors in that environment. But it's really essential for all of us, right, to be culturally competent dermatologists, um, to really know how to evaluate, diagnose, and treat disease in different colors. And so I think it's really important that, you know, whatever you feel you're not seeing, that you really, you know, look for resources that are going to show you what it can present as. So even common everyday inflammatory conditions like psoriasis, like atopic dermatitis, like seborrheic dermatitis, these conditions can look differently in different skin colors. And so you need to see what that can look like, right? You need to see what you know, someone with moderate to severe psoriasis looks like, and if they're a type five, six person versus a type one, two, right? You're not, erythema is no longer really part of defining the disease in your darker skin person. That person's going to have more, you know, violaceous to brown gray, you know, patches and plaques. Your darker skin person's often going to have PIH as well, you know, from the condition after it goes away. Um, and I think it's not only important for diagnosis, but also disease severity, right? So 
uh, you know, a lot of times erythema and redness are used as a marker of inflammation. And the problem is in darker skin, the person doesn't have that. And so they often are undertreated for their disease severity because the, the markers they're looking for aren't there. So I think really making sure that your eye is trained to see as much as possible um, of diseases in different colors is really, really important. And like I said, if you're not seeing it in your your training location, then, you know, there's so many resources that you can use to try to see it. And I think the good thing that's happening now in dermatology is there's been a big push to go back and look at our textbooks, look at our journals, look at all our resources and see that there hasn't been enough over the years in terms of diverse representation. And so I think there's a lot of active work going on to change that, which I think is great. Yeah, it's very important. Dermatology is like anything, you know, with more practice, the better you get. You know, if you play the piano 10 minutes a day, you know, every week, you're not really going to get better. But if you practice a lot, you look at diseases in, uh, you know, Caucasian skin and skin of color, the more you see, the more confident you'll be and the better you'll do. So that's really great advice. Really love those board review tips. Um, appreciate those. Want to jump into the main part of the episode. And again, I want to ask you about finding your niche in dermatology. You know, it's funny. We go to college and we're like, well, what am I going to do in my career? I'll go to medical school, which is a great choice. Medical school, so many wonderful fields to choose from. What field am I going to go into? You finally pick dermatology. You come to dermatology clinic and then you say to yourself, well, what am I going to do in dermatology? There's so many great things. So can you give me some advice from your experience or from maybe your colleague's experience about finding a niche in dermatology? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right. It's like we're constantly at this uh, at these crossroads of having to make more and more decisions. But I guess the one thing I want to say is stepping back and letting everyone know that, you know, you don't have to have a niche either, right? Just being a, you know, excellent dermatologist who can do medical dermatology or procedural or both is awesome, right? Like we have a shortage of dermatologists in many places across the country and we need people who just are able to, to kind of handle general medical and procedural derm. Um, but I think for people who um, are, you know, in academics or in private who want to have a specific niche or who've done fellowships, um, you know, there's definitely a place and, and benefit for some people in having a niche. Um, I actually didn't, you know, uh, kind of plan it out and say like, okay, this is what I want my niche to be. Let me start doing it. It kind of unfolded organically for me. Um, I took a research year between my third and fourth year of med school, and I did a master's of science in clinical research. And it was this NIH-funded program, you know, at University of Michigan where I was in med school. And so that year, I spent a year doing clinical research. Um, and my mentor, um, Dr. Sewan Kang, had asked me, you know, what are you interested in? And so I remember sitting down and just making a list of like what I thought were cool research topics and what I was passionate about. And a lot of what I ended up writing, um, I realized after, was related to pigmentation. And so that was when I got started doing research in pigmentation. And I got really fascinated because there was so much that was unanswered. And it was so shocking to me that like, you know, with all the research we have, when you would you know, do a lit search, you'd find some things that, you know, only had a limited body of literature on it. So I realized like, wow, there's a lot that we still need to learn. And there's a lot I could contribute to in this space. Um, and so that's how I got started sort of in the pigmentation world. And then when I got to residency, our residency actually had some protected time for us in our second and third year to do research. Um, and so I started delving a little bit more into pigmentation and that kind of overlap naturally with skin of color. Um, and so my project started kind of going in that direction. 
And, you know, some of my mentors had expertise in that area. So that's where the seed was planted. Um, After my residency, I did a fellowship. And I think that first year, oftentimes after residency, whether you do a fellowship or, you know, you pick a job that allows you to kind of get extra training in a certain area can be really pivotal for the direction you kind of keep going in. Um, so I did a, a fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania um, called the Clinician Educator Fellowship. And what was really great about it was that, you know, I had time to sort of delve deeper into my areas of interest while also learning how to be a clinician educator. So I spent time um, with a lot of experts across the country and globally um, who did the work that I was passionate about. And you know, I started really kind of getting into uh, understanding on a basic science and a clinical level, a lot of these diseases that affect people of color and a lot of the pigmentary disorders. And I set up a specialty clinic um, while I was there. And I meant for it to be a pigmentary clinic. But when I started it, the greatest number of patients who came were vitiligo patients. So that's how I kind of fell into vitiligo. I've never started out saying like, okay, I'm going to choose vitiligo as a niche and go into that. Um, It started much more broadly. And so sometimes, you know, you have a a passion or interest and one thing unfolds and kind of takes you to the next and, and brings you to that niche. So, um, so that's how I really fell into vitiligo specifically as a disease that I do a lot of work in. But I think um, having a niche can be incredibly rewarding and incredibly fun. um, You know, if it's something that you want to do. Yeah, it's true what you said you don't have to have a niche in dermatology. You could be a really great general dermatologist, which is what we need in a lot of parts of the country. And the great thing about dermatology, as we all know, is you can do medicine, you can do surgery, you can do a little bit of cosmetics too, which is you know why a lot of us really, really enjoy this field. So I want to ask you, if you find your niche, can you do this in academics and in private practice? Or if you go into private practice and say, I'm a vitiligo expert, will patients come to you and will people respect you being in private practice, but also saying you're an expert in this area? Yeah, absolutely. I think you can be an expert in both. And I think we have great representations of that in our specialty. Um, You know, I think uh, part of it is, um, you know, building your your reputation and your name. And I think part of how you build that is through your credibility um, and the work you do and the training you've had. Um, But I think that either setting uh, can work. You know, I think if you are doing it in an academic setting, you know, um, you might have uh, infrastructure and support if you're starting out as a junior faculty that can kind of help you in building it. I think if you're in private, um, there's different options as well. I mean, if you're starting out on your own, I think you definitely want to have mentors who can help guide you in terms of how to build that niche within a specific community. But if you're joining a group, you might get that from the group that you're joining. So I think there's lots of different ways. And then there's people who do hybrid, right? They have a foot in each world Mm -hmm. and and they also have a niche. So they might do a specialty clinic at the academic institution. They might also do it in their practice um, or both. So I think there's lots of options. So let's say you find your specialized area within dermatology. What's expected of someone who says they're an expert? Is it seeing a ton of patients? Is it speaking at conferences? Is it writing papers or serving on guideline committees? I mean, what do you really have to do to establish yourself once you pick your your specialized field within dermatology? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that ultimately lead to somebody being an expert in an area. Um, you know, part of it is obviously the training you've had in it, you know, and the volume of uh, patients that you might have seen with it. Um, you know, my one of my mentors, Dr. James, I remember mentioned to me, you know, he said, well, if you had a half a day a week where you saw certain diseases, like, you know, almost every week of the year, 
you're going to end up seeing way more of, of those diseases than the average person, right? Just by sort of creating that sort of specialty time for it. Um, but I think also, you know, there's so many ways to be involved with different diseases, right? So now we have different organizations, like different uh, patient advocacy groups and national organizations. So if you want to do psoriasis, right, getting involved with the National Psoriasis Foundation, like I work with the Global Vitiligo Foundation, we have an HS Foundation. So there's so many groups that you can get involved with that connect you with colleagues, right, who are national and global experts. It also allows you to connect to patients. So I think it's good to get involved on that level. I think um, doing research in the area obviously helps to make you an expert in the field. Um, So the more that you have studied it and published on it, um, you know, I think that really helps sort of solidify, you know, your expertise in the area. And then when you do those things, you end up getting invited to talk about it. Um, So I think it's first, you know, building your expertise and credibility and then the other things kind of come after. Then you start getting invited to speak or being on ad boards or be a consultant and things like that. Yeah. So it's not like you show up day one and you're getting speaking opportunities and things like that. You know, you have to see the patients, uh, write some papers, serve on some committees, and then your name will get out there. Then right. you'll be asked to do, do these talks. So how about um, taking your specialized knowledge, your niche, and looking at the uh, consultancy and uh business and company side. So how do you serve as an advisory board member, consultant, or employee of a dermatology-related company that's related to your specialized area? What's some advice on that? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of approaches. Um, You know, I started doing more of that work as my expertise built, right? So when I started out, I really wasn't thinking, like, how can I become a consultant? How can I do this? Like, I just found what I was passionate about and I took a deep dive into it, right? And so I knew I I was really into pigmentation and skin of color and diversity. And I tried to really um, learn as much about it as I could and contribute as much as I could through the work I was doing. Those things naturally led to then people coming to me with opportunities. So I didn't really kind of go at it as like thinking, oh, I want to I want to do this from the beginning. How can I do it? And I will say, I think there's so many different career paths. And I think that's something that, you know, when we finish residency, um, it's hard because you're used to being told what your next step is. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, how do I figure out like getting a job and my first option and what to do? And there are people who go straight from residency into working for industry or companies doing derm type work. And and that's a unique track. And I think some people have done that and been really happy with it. Or there's some who do that part-time, right? And still see patients part-time. So I think the important thing is to keep an open mind, know that all options are on the table, but once you decide what you want, find people who've done it and talk to those people because you do need guidance and mentorship on whatever path you take. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, you know, once you, once you do establish yourself as an expert, those opportunities kind of, again, they come organically. You will start to get asked, you know, can you, uh, be on this advisory board or can you consult with us on this? Um, because at that point they're looking for key opinion leaders. And once you've established yourself as one, then, then you will kind of naturally get asked. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. You know, don't go into it, just asking for the opportunities, establish yourself, put out good research in the field, speak at conferences, serve on committees, and those opportunities will come. And if you're passionate about it and you do a good job, they should come seamlessly. So it's, it's really true what you said. Nada, this has been so good. Um, we've had such a good conversation. Uh, we're almost done, but I always love to end on a personal note. And I know you live in Los Angeles and 
I always love going to Los Angeles. I have a cousin that lives in Hollywood. So I wanted to ask you, if someone's coming to LA for the first time, what are some things that they can't miss when they visit? Gosh, there's so many fun things. Um, I still feel like I'm new to LA despite now going into my fifth year here. But I think when people come out to LA, they often um, want to go to the beach. <laughs> I know I definitely thought about that when I'd visit um, my brothers who are out here. So um, we live not too far from Malibu. So that's a definite place that we like to go to. There's some really good seafood places along the water there with great views. So I would say that's a, a can't miss. Um, the Hollywood sign is pretty awesome to see, um, and I think that's kind of a landmark in L.A., and there's some great hikes that you can take um, where you can actually see the sign and get some exercise in and some nice views of the city, um, so I would add that in. Um, and then there's a lot of little pockets and neighborhoods, so I think just depends on what you're into. We have a Koreatown, we have Little Tokyo, um, you know, we have so many other, like, it's just really rich in diversity, so we have so many different um cultures and ethnic groups that are here. And so depending on what you like, I think there's something for everybody. But those are some of the things that we often do when guests come in town. LA is always a great place to visit. Looking forward to my next trip out there. Thank you again for your great advice. I think this has been a really helpful episode for residents. Great. This was so fun. Thanks for having me.